Good morning. All right, we're continuing our series, Planned and Unplanned Parenthood. We started this series last week with the idea that the birth of Jesus Christ was planned from God's perspective, and it was unplanned from the human perspective. And in today's scripture, we're going to see that Jesus' birth was definitely unplanned from Joseph's perspective. Um, we are going to be picking up right where we left off last week. So last week we learned the first half of Matthew chapter 1. Today we're going to learn the second half of Matthew chapter 1. Our scripture is Matthew 1, verses 18 through 25. So I'm going to begin by reading <clears throat> that passage to you, and then we'll talk about what it means. Matthew 1, starting in verse 18, says this. The birth of Jesus Christ came about this way. After his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, it was discovered before they came together that she was pregnant by the Holy Spirit. So her husband, Joseph, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her publicly, decided to divorce her secretly. But after he had considered these things, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because what has been conceived in her is by the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins." Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel, which is translated, God is with us. When Joseph got up from sleeping, he did as the Lord's angel had commanded him. He married her, but did not know her intimately until she gave birth to a son, and he named him Jesus. So this past week, I was trying to decide what I was going to say today and try to figure out like, you know, what it is that I should say about these verses, and I decided to put my thoughts under four headings. So the sermon this morning has four points, not really four points, four categories of things we're going to talk about. And if you put them up on the screen at this time, we're going to talk about number one, the description of the first Christmas, number two, Joseph's obedience, number three, the virgin birth, and number four, Jesus saves God is with us. That's all one point. And so those are the four headings that we're going to learn today. Description of the first Christmas, Joseph's obedience, the virgin birth, Jesus saves, God is with us. And I'm not going to spend an equal amount of time on all four of them. I'm going to spend quite a bit more time on the last two than I do the first two. And that's on purpose because I've kind of listed them here in order of importance. Um, I think order of importance, probably just generally speaking and roughly the order of importance from the way Matthew wrote his book. Like, what did Matthew think was most important as he was describing these events? So this is the order we'll go. Let's start with the thing that I think is the least important thing, which is description of the first Christmas. So if you look at this passage, you realize the emphasis here is not giving us a bunch of details about the first Christmas. Did you notice? There are a lot of details that are missing. Um, if this account were the only account that we had of the Christmas story, our Christmas pageants would look way different, wouldn't they? Yeah, very different. There's, as far as the night that Jesus was born, there's very little description of it. Most of the stuff in these four paragraphs all take place several months before Jesus was born. And then when the story finally gets to the night that Jesus was born, did you notice? There's like one sentence that describes his birth. In fact, it's not just one sentence. It's half a sentence. And if you look at the sentence, you realize that the half of the sentence that says Jesus was born isn't even what the sentence is about. Did you, did you notice that? Look at Look at uh, Matthew chapter 1, verses 24 through 25. So all this stuff happens before, then you finally get to the night. In fact, we're not even quite there yet. Look, when Joseph got up from sleeping, so this is still months earlier, he did as the Lord's angel had commanded him. He married her, but he did not know her intimately until she gave birth to a son. There's a Christmas story in Matthew, right? What, what does it say about the birth of Jesus? It says, 
She gave birth to a son. That's what we know about the story from Matthew's perspective. In fact, it doesn't just say she gave birth to a son. It says, until she gave birth to a son, which shows you, like, that's not even what the sentence is about. That's just like a, like a little dependent clause for those of you who are English things, right? This is, this, is, this is not even what the sentence is about. The sentence is about he married her but did not know her intimately until she gave birth to a son. And so when we're talking about the, the night of our dear Savior's birth and we look at what Matthew has to say, we don't have much. And so I am not going to take up a lot of time this morning trying to give you some sort of sentimental description of the manger scene, okay? Because that is just not what this is about. I know sometimes people expect preachers to explain, oh, and there they were, and the shepherds and all that, but that's not what we've got in Matthew's account. So let's move on to the next thing. Point number two, Joseph's obedience. Now this one I like. Um, I think that this topic is more important than the manger scene, because this topic is actually in the passage, okay? This is actually in there. In verse 19, Joseph um, decides to divorce Mary secretly, is what the way that it's phrased. So you probably understand what's going on here, but just in case you don't, Joseph is engaged to be married to Mary. He has not slept with her yet, and then at some point she's pregnant and he can tell. So at this point of the story, she must be showing. And he knows that he has not slept with her. So, I mean, they were not dumb back then. They knew how babies were made. He knew it wasn't his kid, and he, that meant it was somebody's, and so he just came to the normal conclusion that you would. She's got somebody else, right? She's with someone else, so he was going to break it off with her. I know the verse says divorce her secretly. It's a little bit different than our divorce because um, they weren't married yet. Isn't that weird that it says they were engaged, but he was going to divorce her? But their, their betrothal process was much more formal than ours, and that's basically just the way of saying he was going to break it off with her. He's going to break it off with her because she'd moved on to somebody else. And then an angel appears to him, and the angel basically says, don't do that. Right? The story says, like, he had sat down, thought about what to do, he made a decision about what to do, and then the angel shows up and goes, don't do what you're about to do. Don't do it. Don't leave her. And the angel assumes, and he, I think that's what he means when he says, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Your plan earlier this year was to marry her. Stick with that plan. Don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. And then the angel goes on to make it clear that, he, that the command is to stick with her because he, basically the angel assumes you're going you're gonna to stick with her and then the baby's going to be born and you're going to be there and you're going to name him. Joseph, you have a role to play in this story. You are to name him Jesus, which means the Lord saves because he will save his people from their sins. So, the angel, so, he, so Joseph's got an idea of what he wants to do and the angel comes in and says, don't do it, do something different and gives him a different set of commands. Now, does he obey? Yes. And you look at verses 24 and 25. When Joseph got up from sleeping, he did as the Lord's angel had commanded him. He obeyed what he was told to do. He married her, but did not know her intimately until she gave birth to a son. And then he named him Jesus. Why did Joseph name him Jesus? Because the angel said, name him Jesus. He was obeying. Now, here's the thing. Um, at this point, I think that there are many Bible readers and Bible teachers who kind of examine the verses, and then, and then they, they go, okay, so Joseph obeyed what he was told to do, and then this is the next question they ask themselves. Okay, now what does this have to do with my life? Or if they're the preacher, how does this apply to the people's life? And I think a real common temptation to do at this point is to go, okay, uh, Joseph was obedient, so here's the application. You should be obedient too. In fact, I'm pretty sure if you go 
like just Google around and look for whatever, commentaries or different uh, Bible devotionals about this passage or different sermons that preachers have preached on this passage. I bet you that's a very common way to apply this passage to your life. Joseph was obedient. You should be obedient too. But here's the deal. First of all, I want to say this. That is not untrue. Joseph was obedient. The story is very clear that he was obedient. And if you look at the rest of the Bible, you should be obedient too. Like that, that is clear. So when someone says that, we can't go, that's wrong. No, those sentences are true. However, I don't think that's the main purpose of this story. And that's why I talked with you a little bit about this last week, and we also talked about it back when we did our How to Read the Bible series. That we want to understand what the passage is about, and then sometimes the next question shouldn't be, how does this apply to my life? The next question should be, why did this person write this? What was Matthew doing? What was he trying to accomplish? What was, why did he write out this story this way? Because you've got to remember, there was, a guy, there was an actual guy 2,000 years ago who sat down at a desk or a table somewhere, and he hand-wrote out the Christmas story. Why did he write it out? And if you read the rest of the book of Matthew, I think you can tell he did not think to himself, I'm surrounded by disobedient people. What do I do? I know what I'll do. I'll write down the story of Joseph. And that will inspire people to be obedient. No, we, by reading the rest of Matthew, we know. <laughs> the gospel of Matthew is about Jesus. It's not the story of Joseph. This whole document is about Jesus. Matthew sat down to write about Jesus. And the inclusion of the Christmas story into the account, while revealing Joseph's obedience, was primarily meant to teach us about who Jesus is and what he came for. And so that's the focus of this passage, and that's going to be the focus of my sermon. However, before I move on to that, let me just say, because this is important, Joseph was obedient, and you should be obedient too. That's true. And, and Joseph was obedient in a time that it must have been difficult. I mean, he's sitting there, and he's pretty sure he can believe his eyes, and he understands the way the world works, and then a messenger from God comes and basically says... Don't believe your eyes. Just trust me and do the very opposite of what you were thinking of doing. That had to be hard to obey. It had to be difficult for him to trust God and obey. And there may be some of you in this room that are in that kind of same situation where you're going, it is difficult to trust God and obey. You may be in a situation where, in fact, you may be in a situation where you've already decided to obey and some time has gone on and you're almost having to like re-up Right? That I'm, I'm, I'm having to actively decide to keep obeying. Have you been there? That's important. So I thought we should just sit on this for a minute. That's important. Okay, let's keep going. What's the next part? The story teaches us about the virgin birth. So we've got Joseph's obedience, and we should be obedient too. We also have an explanation that Jesus was born of a virgin. Matthew, I think, makes it very clear in the story that Mary and Joseph had not slept together, not before she was pregnant, not even up until the time that the baby was born, right? Matthew goes to great pains to make all that very clear. Matthew's case for um, the virgin birth is very clear. And the other, the other book of the Bible that we have, uh, the other version of the Christmas story, which is Luke, he also makes that clear. Luke is the one who gives us, you know, the swaddling clothes in the manger and there's no room in the inn. Like, we'd have no Christmas plays if it weren't for Luke. Okay, thank you, Luke. But Matthew and Luke both talk about the virgin birth. They both make this clear. So why is this an important part of the story? Why is it important that Jesus was born of a virgin? And so I wanted to give you three reasons. 
I wanted to give you three reasons that are not unique to me. You could probably find these on the internet. You could look in commentaries and see them. But I wanted to give you three reasons why the virgin birth is important. Okay, first one. The virgin birth is a possible explanation as to why Jesus lacked inherited sin or sinfulness. Why did Jesus lack inherited sinfulness? The idea here, and this is a very common Christian belief, that human beings are born with sin, an inherited sin that we have. It's just we have a sinfulness. We have a tendency towards sin. Most of the Christians I've ever met in my life believe this. Most denominations and most Christian organizations believe this. Very common belief that human beings are born with whatever you call it, sin nature, original sin, but some kind of inherited sinfulness. And when I say lots and lots of Christians believe it, I I am one of the Christians that believes that. The idea behind it is everybody's a sinner, which the Bible is very clear on that. Everybody is a sinner. And so we, we, all, we all, something happened and we're all sinners. Like what, where did we all go? Like what, what event happened that we were all at? That we all have that in common. It's not just most people are sinners, like everybody's a sinner. Where were we all at that we got that? And the idea is, well, the thing we have in common is our humanity. We were born this way. This is an inherited trait that sin is natural for us. And I think that the Bible teaches that. I'll show you one place. Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 3. In fact, Ephesians chapter 2, earlier in the, in the chapter, it says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. It's talking about people before they came to know Jesus. Before they come to know Jesus, just your natural default setting is that you're, you're spiritually dead, you're disobedient, you're walking in the ways of this world, you're walking in the ways of Satan. And then when you get to verse 3, it says, we too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. This is the idea that everybody before they come to know Jesus has these fleshly desires. In context, you can tell it's like bad desires. We carry out, we actually do, the inclinations of our flesh. We're inclined toward these wrong things. And we were, by nature, children under wrath, as the others were also, as the rest of them. The rest of them meaning all the other human beings, right? We were by nature children under wrath like everybody is. Every single person is a child under wrath. Whose wrath? God's wrath. That because of our sinfulness, God's wrath, his justice, his judgment is upon us. But it's interesting. It doesn't just say that we're children under wrath. It says we are by nature children under wrath. This wrath because of our sinfulness is what's natural for us. Sin is a natural thing, and so that's why the assumption is it's this this inherited thing. Now, if that's true, then we come to the virgin birth and we go, well, is it possible that Jesus lacked inherited sin or sinfulness because of the virgin birth? And so the the idea that kind of comes underneath this is the idea assumes that sin is passed down from generation to generation through the line of the males, that it's fathers that pass down inherited sin to their children, okay? This is speculation. The Bible does not say this. There's not a verse that specifically says this, and so I am not dogmatic about this. But it sort of makes sense, especially with other verses in the Bible and the way this story is told, right? If sinfulness is passed on from generation to generation, and if it's passed on from generation to generation through the mother, Jesus would have been sinful at birth because he had a mother, right? Jesus had a mother, But if he was not sinful at birth and he had a mother, the idea is, oh, well, perhaps it's because sin is passed down through the men. Mm. Now, the idea for this matches with other things in Scripture. 
Because if you look at the New Testament, and maybe you've noticed this before, the New Testament looks back to the Old Testament, and it talks about how sin entered into the world. And do you remember which character in the Old Testament the Bible says sin entered into the world through? Adam. Now, isn't that weird? Because I've, I've read that story, and there's two people in that story, okay? There's, I've read it multiple times. Adam and Eve are both there, every version. By every version of the Bible, you'll, I'm telling you, Adam and Eve are in the story every time. They're both there. So why in the world does the book of Romans say sin entered into the world through one man and specifically names that it's Adam? Why wouldn't you say sin entered into the world through Adam and Eve? That seems fair. Or if you're going to just pick one of them, come on, <laughs> pick Eve. She went first. She did. Go read the story. She did it first, then handed it to him, then he did it. You think there's this world with no sin and then a woman sinned, and there's sin. No, Romans says Adam did this. What? Why? And so I don't know for sure, but it seems as though the Bible treats Adam as if he was a, a, a representative of the human race in a way that Eve was not. That he um, sinned on behalf of us all, perhaps in a way that Eve did not. And, the, and Romans specifically says that he, he, sin entered the world through him, and death entered into the world through sin, and death has passed on to everybody seems to be through Adam. So, perhaps sin travels through the line of the man. Now, if, if you are a woman here today, and you're just looking for a reason to be mad at men, like in general, okay? Not like mad at a specific man. I'm sure you've got good reason to be mad at him. But I'm saying, if you're looking to be mad at just all men in general, okay? Don't say I never gave you anything, okay? This... This little bit of theological speculation is my Christmas present to you, okay? Okay, back to being serious. It is possible that the reason Jesus was not by nature under wrath, perhaps because of the virgin birth. Now, maybe there's another explanation or another understanding of this, okay? Jesus, um, it seems to me, was imputed with, uh, with sin at some point, right? Because at some point he died on the cross for our sins, Right? Our sins were placed in his body and he died for us on the tree. So I don't know when that happened. Maybe it happened at his birth. I, only thing I can say is I know that we sin and he does not. And maybe the virgin birth is connected to that. Okay? So like I said, not super dogmatic about it. I am more dogmatic about these next two points. Okay? Why is the virgin birth important? Second reason. It is an explanation of his divinity. The virgin birth is an explanation of his divinity. That is, Jesus Christ was not born like the normal human way, regular biological father, biological mother, and then at some point in his life attained godlike status. Okay, now that is a belief, like that's been a belief historically. I don't know if anybody still believes it. But the idea would be Jesus was born the normal way, dad, mom, sperm, egg, blah, 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 the way it always happens, and then here he is living his life, being a human, and at some point God looked down and went, whoa, you are very good at being a human, so good that I adopt you, and you are now the son of God, right? I adopt you to be the son of God now. That is not what the Bible teaches. Jesus was the son of God from birth. Matthew and Luke make it clear, Joseph was not his father. Jesus was the son of God from conception. God used a virgin birth to show Jesus is not an ordinary human. He's God in the flesh. And then the third reason why I think the virgin birth matters is it is an explanation of his humanity. Not only, an it's not only is it an explanation of his divinity, it's an explanation of his humanity. We've just talked about how Jesus is divine, but he also was a human being. Well, how do you know he was a human being? He was born of a woman. 
He was a human being. Like if he was, if, he, if we go, okay, he's the son of God, but if there was no Mary involved, if he was not born from her, I just, it'd be difficult to, to categorize him as human, right? If Jesus was in heaven and then he just kind of fell to earth like a meteorite, okay, and he was here, it'd be hard to say, well, that's a human, he's one of us. No, there are other heavenly beings that have come here, right? Multiple stories in the Bible of angels and such, right? Heavenly beings that come here, but we don't say they're human. Jesus was born of a woman. And this matches with even our understanding of this kind of thing. You know, like if you look at just our own, like literature, maybe literature is too good of a word for this. If you look at comic books and you see like <laughs> Superman story, right? Superman was from where? Krypton, right? He's from Krypton and he came here in a pod or however it worked and he lands in some field somewhere and then he had two parents that adopted him, right? But they weren't his actual parents. They were just the people that found him in a cornfield or however the story happened. And then he grows up and he has all these powers and it's like, whoa, why does he have all these powers? And the idea is because he's not one of us. That's not the story that we have here of Jesus. He didn't just fall down. He was born of a woman. He's a human being and the Bible treats him as a human being. And when I say he's a human being, I'm not saying he's, he's half human, half God. I think that would be kind of a mistake that we could make by just assuming by human analogy, well, if he's the son of God and he's the son of Mary, maybe he's half God, half human. I don't think the Bible treats him like he's half anything. He's 100% God, 100% human, right? When you, I think, I think maybe we can think of it that way because we, I don't know, maybe we have the wrong analogy. Um, if we have, let's say you have in our world, we got um, a Chinese man and he marries a Swedish woman, and then they have children together. We say that the children are half Chinese and half Swedish. That's not what's going on here. The story that Matthew tells us is not like, God does not have sexual relations with Mary. That's not the story. It's not like Mary and God are in some sense peers, right? And from the marriage of Mary and God springs forth Jesus. That's not the story that Matthew's telling. Mary is not God's wife, right? She's Joseph's wife by the end of this story. That's very clear. God caused divinity to be within Mary so that she gave birth to the Son of God, that he was 100% God, he's 100% man, and that's how the Bible, I think, treats him. You look at uh, the book of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews talks about Jesus like he was a human being. Um, Hebrews chapter 2 talks about how he took on flesh and blood like us. He's not ashamed to call us brothers, and he had to be made like his brothers in every way. In order for him to deal with our sin, he had to be like us, his brothers. Well, in what way are we his brothers? He's a fellow human. That's how Hebrews treats him. And yet you might go, well, if he's human, then he's not God. No, nope, he's God. The book of John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and he created everything. And he, and he became flesh and dwelt among us. And it's clear that John's talking about Jesus there, that Jesus is the God who dwelt among us. And at the end of John's gospel, Thomas, doubting Thomas, is there and Jesus shows up and doubting Thomas sees Jesus alive again after he died and sees the nail marks in his hands and the puncture wound in his side. And Thomas says to Jesus, my Lord and my demigod? No, my God. That's how the Bible treats Jesus. He is, our, he, is, he is a human being and he is God from the virgin birth. So, description of the first Christmas, Joseph's obedience, the virgin birth. And now, this is the one I want to spend the most amount of time on because I think this is, the big, this is the most important part, I think. Jesus saves. God is with us. I think this is the point of the passage. I think these ideas for Matthew are the main point of the story. Now, one of these, Jesus saves, we get from the angel's words to Joseph and the other part of this, we get from a comment that Matthew makes in the story. Like Matthew's telling the story, this happened, then this happened. And then Matthew just makes this 
I don't know, editorial comment in the middle where he just talks about what he thinks is important. And that's where we get this from. So Jesus saves, God is with us. So let's look at Jesus saves first. It's found in verse 21. This is the angel speaking to Joseph. And the angel says, She, Mary, will give birth to a son, and you, Joseph, are to name him Jesus. This is important. You're supposed to name him Yahweh saves. You're supposed to name him the Lord saves. Why? The angel says why. Because he will save his people from their sins. Joseph is sitting there, or sleeping there, I guess, and he, he's being told that there's this very unusual thing happening, right? That, that what happened with his fiance is different than normal stuff. This, she's pregnant by the Holy Spirit. There's something special going on here. And so Joseph's understanding something special is going on here, but the angel is telling him, this is what the special thing is. Yes, if you're thinking this is a special story, it is. And that's why you need to give him the name the Lord saves, because he will save the people from their sins. That's what's special about this birth, is he's the Savior. He's the Savior who's going to save his people from their sins. His, his death on the cross, which Matthew explains later on as he goes on and tells the rest of the story, Jesus' death on the cross provided rescue from sin's penalty. Jesus' death on the cross provided rescue from God's wrath and judgment. Remember that verse that says we are children under wrath? By nature, we are naturally not in God's good graces, right? We are naturally under wrath. We deserve punishment because of our sin. But that wrath can be removed. We can be rescued from it because Jesus took it on for us. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. And this passage says, you're to name him Jesus because he will save, and this is interesting, he will save his people from their sins. Don't even say he's going to save everybody, right? He's going to save his people from their sins. Well, who are his people? And I think if you look at the Bible as a whole, the, the simple answer to that is the people who truly believe in him. Whoever truly believes in Jesus and follows him, those are his people and they will be saved. So that's what we learn about the whole point of this birth from the angel. And then Matthew makes a comment. So Matthew's telling the story, verse 18, verse 19, verse 20, verse 21, right? Mary does this, Joseph does this, angel does this. And then Matthew sort of stops the story and says, now here's what's going on. Verse 21, Matthew says, now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Matthew has been telling the story, but then in verse 22, and this is important, I think, because when we're reading this passage, we should be asking ourselves, okay, what's the point here? And this is what stuck out to me. Matthew stops telling the story for a second to say, hey, now all this took place to fulfill. So I'm sitting there going, well, what's the point? And I'm trying to take a hint from Matthew. Seems like he's telling us the point. He's in the middle of the story and he goes, now here's the, here's the thing. All this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. And then he quotes from Isaiah chapter 7. See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel, which is translated, God is with us. And the quote from Isaiah actually ends at Emmanuel, the words, which is translated, God is with us, that's Matthew. And that's a hint. We need to understand, Matthew thought us knowing God is with us was a part of this, was important. Like he didn't just, he didn't just quote this and go and name Emmanuel. Matthew quotes it and then goes, and just in case you don't know the original language, I want you to understand what I'm trying to draw attention to here. God is with us. God with us is the thing that Matthew draws attention to. So, what's he saying? I think he's saying that this, these, these words matter. Even the translation of this word matters. Jesus is God with us. And so he makes that point by quoting this Old Testament prophecy. However, I think that there are two apparent problems that we have to deal with regarding this prophecy and its application to Jesus. 
You may or may not know this already, but I think that there are two problems with this prophecy when we look at it and go, oh yeah, that's about Jesus. Okay, you want to know what they are? I think there's two issues. One issue um, is more obvious than the other one. So let me start with the more obvious one. The more obvious one is, Matthew's describing what this is about, and he says, the virgin will become pregnant and will give birth to a son, and they will name him what? Emmanuel. Wait a minute. That's not Jesus, is it? Nope, different word, isn't it? Jesus is the Lord saves. Emmanuel is God with us. So Matthew tells the story, and he says there's going to be this virgin. The virgin's going to have the baby. The baby's going to be named Emmanuel. And Jesus' name is not Emmanuel. That's not what he was named. Now you might go, well, maybe he was. No, 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 maybe. This passage makes it really clear what his name is. Like it could, I feel like it couldn't be more clear. The paragraph before this one is the one where the angel specifically says, name him Jesus. The angel could have showed up and said, Joseph, name him Emmanuel. We got to fit with Isaiah 7, buddy. Okay, so make sure Emmanuel, so we match the Old Testament. Angel could have said that. Angel specifically said, name him Jesus. Then there's this part. And then after this, you have when it happened. And, and, and the paragraph that comes after this, you might wonder, ooh, what's Joseph going to do? Is Joseph going to name him Emmanuel? Or is Joseph going to name him Jesus? And by the time you get to verse 25, you realize Joseph names him Jesus. He obeys what the angel told him to do. Well, then how in the world is this about Jesus? That's not his, that's not his name. I don't think this passage could be more clear that that's not his name. And there is no record that anyone ever called him by that name. Now, for us, that might not be obvious and might be, it might not seem that way to you because we've celebrated who knows how many Christmases by now and we hear Emmanuel, Emmanuel, and we sing the song, and, you know, we sing the songs that say Emmanuel, and so we kind of think like, yeah, that was his name. But like, it, there, was a, there was a day before all those Christmas songs were written and that's not what his name was. It wasn't even a nickname. There's no record of anyone saying, hey, Manny, like nothing. There was no, nobody called him Emmanuel during his lifetime. So how could it be his name? That's the first issue. Second issue, and this one's even worse, second issue is, if you go back to the original prophecy from Isaiah, it sure looks like that passage isn't even about Jesus and the birth of Christ. You go back and read it to its original context, and you're like, no, it's about another thing. So I'm going to show that to you. Isaiah chapter 7. I'm going to start reading in verse 1. Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14 is like the, wah, wah, the Christmas verse. But I want to read the verses that come before it, at least some of them, to give you a hint of like what's going on or some of the flavor of this, this story. So back, Isaiah chapter 7, this was oh, maybe about 600 years before the birth of Christ-ish. And Isaiah writes this. He says, This took place during the reign of Ahaz, son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah. And so this is, this is the beginning of chapter 7. Okay? This took place during the reign of Ahaz. That's important. So that's the king at this point. Son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah. This would be a particular like, section of Israel. This is the line of David. This is the tribe that Jesus is from. Like These are Jesus' people right here. Okay, Judah. And this, these people are from the very line that Jesus is from. Like, if you remember what we t preached on last week when we looked at the genealogy, like Ahaz is one of the people in there. Remember how we said Jesus came from a line of kings? This is one of the kings. This is Jesus' great, 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 great granddad. Okay, so Ahaz is king of this section of Israel that Jesus is from, Judah. And there's two other kings in the story, two bad guys. Rezin, king of Aram, which is another country, along with Pekah, son of Remalia, king of... Israel waged war against Jerusalem, but he could not succeed. But when it became known to the house of David that Aram had occupied Ephraim, which I think was another nearby territory there to Judah, the heart of Ahaz and the hearts of his people trembled like trees of a forest shaking in the wind. So 
King Ahaz is king over the house of David, over the kingdom of God's people, Jesus' ancestors. He's the king over this section, and two bad guys are trying to get him, and the, him and the citizens of his land are scared. They're scared that they're going to come and be conquered. They're scared that these people are going to come and terrorize them and torture them and probably take him off the throne, maybe kill him and put someone else in his place and just take over the whole country and that the, the house of David will not be preserved, okay? The Judah will be destroyed. That's what they're worried about. So God speaks to Isaiah and tells Isaiah to speak to the king, and this is what he says, verse 4. Say to him, this is God speaking to Isaiah, telling Isaiah, say this to Ahaz. Say to him, calm down and be quiet. Don't be afraid or cowardly because of these two smoldering stubs of firebrands, the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and the son of Remaliah for Aram along with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has plotted harm against you. They say, and now notice, this is what he's supposed to say to him, and I think this is exactly what Ahaz was concerned about. They say, let us go up against Judah, terrorize it, and conquer it for ourselves. Then we can install Tabil's son as king in it. That's what Ahaz and his citizens are trembling about. The bad guys are going to come and they're going to destroy us. The bad guys want to come and they want to terrorize us and they're going to take Ahaz off the throne and put Tabil's son in there, whoever Tabil is. So that's what they're worried about. And then God says this, next verse, verse 7. This is what the Lord God says. It will not happen. It will not occur. You're trembling. You're worried that they're going to come get you. You're talking to everybody about how upset you are about it, but just be quiet, calm down, and I am letting you know right now, I will protect you. You're worried the bad guys are going to come and get you. I am telling you that will not occur. Then verse 10, then the Lord spoke again to Ahaz. Okay, so he's saying this, this kingdom of David is going to be preserved. It's going to go on. I'm going to protect you. The Lord spoke again to Ahaz, ask for a sign from the Lord your God, from the depths of Sheol to the heights of heaven. But Ahaz replied, I will not ask. I will not test the Lord. Isaiah said, listen, house of David, is it not enough for you to try the patience of men? Will you also try the patience of my God? I think that's Isaiah's way of saying, like, if God says ask for a sign, like, Ask for a sign. Like, just do it, whatever he says, right? You don't get to go, I'm not going to ask. Like, he said ask, do it. So then... Here's the verse. This is the big Christmas verse. Verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and have a son and name him Emmanuel. By the time he learns to reject what is bad and choose what is good, he will be eating butter and honey. For before the boy knows to reject what is bad and choose what is good, the land of the two kings you dread will be abandoned. What? Now, nobody puts that on a Christmas card. What is eating butter and honey and choosing right from wrong? That's not, that's not part of the Christmas story. What is going on here? And when you look at the story in context, it sure seems to be saying that God is going to preserve the house of David. He's going to protect Ahaz. And the way that he's going to do it is he is going to bring about this child. There is a virgin who will conceive and have a child. And I assume the child would be named Emmanuel, God with us. So the virgin has a child. I'm thinking in the original context, this is probably a virgin at the time that the prophecy was made but that by the time she has Emmanuel, like she has had the child through the normal ways that people conceive, that there is a young girl, a maiden, a virgin at this point, who will at some point marry a man and have a child, and the child is going to be named God with us. And that's a sign for you, Ahaz. There's going to be this little baby named I, uh, uh, God is with us, and God is with us is going to grow up, 
And God is with us one day. He's going to be old enough to eat butter and honey and start to tell the difference between right and wrong and choose right over wrong. And before that happens, the land of the two kings that you dread will be abandoned. You're worried that they're going to come get you. And I'm just letting you know, there's a little boy who's going to be named God with us in your kingdom. And before he gets too old, you will be rescued. You will be protected. They are not coming for you. It will not occur. Now, if this prophecy is about that, and that is what it's about, then it seems obvious that it's about a little boy that was born during Ahaz's lifetime. How could, it be, how could you have a sign to Ahaz that doesn't happen during his own lifetime? But if that's true, and it is, why in the world does Matthew, 600 years later, say that this is about Jesus? Good question, right? So I want to explain it to you. And actually, I want to explain it to you the same way that I did last year with a different verse. Last year when we did Christmas, like literally, I think it was about a year ago today, um, we talked about another prophecy in the Christmas story, and I talked to you about what I'm about to say right now. I'm going to say something very similar to what I said last year, but last year I said it with a different verse. Last year we looked at the place that says, out of Egypt I called my son. And that phrase, out of Egypt I called my son, is, is said to be, the, Jesus was the fulfillment of that. That Jesus, when he was taken to Egypt, when he was a little boy, in order to get away from King Herod, who was killing all the children, he was in Egypt, and then he came out of Egypt, back to Nazareth, and out of Egypt I called my son. Jesus is the fulfillment of that. And I told you last year that if you go back and look at the original prophecy, which I believe is Hosea, it's not predictive of the Messiah. It's not even predictive at all. It's a passage in Hosea that points back to the Exodus. That out of Egypt I called my son is referring to, like, the, the son in that passage, and this is real obvious if you just read the chapter, like, you can just read the next verse, I think. It's very obvious the son in that passage is Israel. Out of Egypt I called my son. Israel is the son of God that was called out of Egypt in the book of Exodus. So, and this is what I said last year, I think I quoted from N.T. Wright, in fact, and talked about how um, Jesus is true Israel, fulfilling everything that Israel is ever supposed to be. Jesus is the Son of God, and Jesus is the Son of God in a bigger, better way than Israel ever was. Jesus deserves the title Son of God in a way that Israel could never possibly live up to. He is the fullness of, he is the fulfillment of those words. Fulfill means to fill up, to complete. Jesus is the ultimate completion, the ultimate version of that. Out of Egypt I called my son. And I think that's what's happening here. I think there are times in the New Testament where authors that are writing the New Testament refer back to Old Testament prophecies. And I want you to understand, sometimes I think they refer back to Old Testament prophecies that were predicting the Messiah and people were able to figure that out on their own. Like it was taken to be predictive about the Messiah. That by the time Jesus came, they went, oh, well, that matches with this prediction about the Messiah. An example of that would be like the Bethlehem prophecies. Micah talks about how a great ruler will be born from Bethlehem. And then you get to the New Testament, you go, sure enough, that's true. And they believed that even before Jesus showed up, they believed he was going to come from Bethlehem. But I think there is another way, a second way, that prophecies in the Old Testament and images and verses and concepts in the Old Testament are used by New Testament writers. Sometimes New Testament writers come into contact with God's incredible story of good news. They understand the gospel. They understand who Jesus is and what is going on. And then they look back at their Old Testament and they go, whoa, he's all over this thing. Whoa, there are things that he is like the ultimate version of. He is the fullness of this. Matthew does that. I think Paul does that. The writer of Hebrews does that. There are lots of times that Old Testament messages are filled up by the gospel or they are completed in Jesus. I think that's what Matthew did with Out of Egypt I Call My Son. And I think he's doing it with this passage as well. I think that 
independent of the book of Isaiah, Matthew, learned about Jesus, was one of his followers, realized that Jesus is God with us, learned that Jesus was born of a virgin. Then, on one rainy day, was reading the book of Isaiah and came across a section of Isaiah that talks about a virgin becoming pregnant and having a son who was God with us, and he was a sign that the house of David would be preserved and rescued by God. And Matthew went, huh, that passage finds its fullness in the fact that hundreds of years later, the house of David was preserved, and the people of God were rescued, and they were rescued through a kid who was born get this, to an actual virgin, and that kid wasn't just named God with us, that kid was God with us. That's, I think, what Matthew's saying here. In fact, I was talking with the guy who cleans this building. His name's Darius. I was talking with him this week, and there was a point where he said to me, he said, everything that God says in his word, there's not one thing that he's ever said that he didn't do. Okay, that's what he said to me. He said, there's not one thing that God has said that he did not do. And as he said it, I was thinking about this passage, because in a few days I knew I was going to be preaching on it, and I thought to myself, I didn't say it out loud, but, but when he said, there's not one thing that God has done that he didn't do, I thought to myself, huh, yeah. And sometimes he does it twice. Sometimes he promises something, and then does it, and then does it bigger and better again. And I think that's how we need to read this. I do not think that we should read this assuming that Matthew does not understand this prophecy in its original context. This idea that maybe Matthew, well, maybe Matthew didn't understand Isaiah 7. Then how do you know to quote Isaiah 7 verse 14? I mean, are we really going to assume that Americans in the year 2021, we understand the Old Testament better than a first century Jewish guy understood it? Going to synagogue, like he heard these passages. He, I bet you he was way more familiar with Isaiah than you are, right? He knew it. How would he have known verse 14 if he didn't know the whole chapter? Like, they didn't even live in a culture that takes verses and pulls them out like Velcro and just does things out of context and slaps it on a coffee mug like we do and hands it to somebody for Father's Day, right? Like, the, the way he knew Matthew 7, 14 is probably because he just knew Matthew 7. He knew the whole story. And I don't think that we should assume that he was being deceptive, that he was trying to, like, slip something past his readers. Like, let's just say this thing in Matthew 7 that's obviously not about Jesus is about Jesus because it's got the word virgin in it. Let's just see if I can slip it past them. I told you last week... I think that Matthew's writing to Jewish people here. He's quoting from Isaiah because they're familiar with Isaiah. It was a popular book at the time. More popular than it is in your life. And I think what happens is once he understood about the virgin birth and he understood that Jesus was God with us, he could not help but see Jesus in the prophecy as the ultimate fulfillment of those words. Maybe I'm wrong, but I think that's what's going on here. And when you combine it with what we said last week, if you go back to the beginning of the chapter, Matthew starts off giving us this long list of names showing that Jesus is the Messiah from the house of David. And then he goes on to say he was virgin-born. And his father, his non-biological father, was to call him the Lord saves, Jesus. And he is the ultimate fulfillment of the Emmanuel prophecy in Isaiah because he's not a person simply named God with us and a sign that God would rescue them, but he actually is God with us, come to save his people from their sins. And that, that's the point of the Christmas story. 
I think that's the point of what Matthew is writing here, and I think that's the point of the whole Christmas story. Christmas is not about family time, and let's be slightly more generous than normal, and let's be nice to one another. Like, that's not what the Christmas story is about. The point of the Christmas story is God came here and dwelt among us and saved his people from their sins. That's the point of the Christmas story. Now, this God with us idea, was it important to Matthew? I think it was. Maybe this is a coincidence. But Matthew starts his gospel with that Jesus is God with us. And then look how he ends his gospel. He writes this whole document and then he gets to the end. And you know, you've got to decide what the final words are going to be. Let me read you the final words of the book of Matthew. This is how he ends the story. He quotes Jesus as saying this, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And then Jesus throws in one last thing. What is it? Look at it. He says, and remember, I am... with you, always, to the end of the age. He starts off with, Jesus is God with us, and he ends with, Jesus is with us always. Jesus is the God who is with us, and he is with us always, to the end of the age. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this. I thank you for your word. I thank you for the Christmas story. I thank you for this reminder of why you came. I thank you that you were clear from the beginning. A special birth. The Son of God. And that you are God with us. The ultimate fulfillment, the ultimate completion of everything that had ever been said before. And so I pray you'd help us to live out, like in this Christmas season, that we would not be so distracted by presence and we got another party to go to and it's two on the same night and how will we figure that out and I got to bake another one and, and, and allow ourselves to miss out on this opportunity to worship you for the fact that you came and dwelt among us, you were with your people and you saved your people and I pray if there's anybody in here who, are, who is not part of your people yet, I pray that they would come to know you today, that they would go, I want to be one of the people who is saved from their sins, I want to be one of his people mm-hmm. saved from my sins. And I pray that there would be people who would turn to you and follow you and repent of their sins and turn to you as their Lord and Savior even today, this Christmas. Mm -hmm. And for those of us who have, I thank you that we can look back and go, oh, that was when he showed up and it was incredible and it was special and Matthew was explaining it the whole way. Thank you, God, for this. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.